after after many attempts yeah. at landing that kind of job. Yeah. That's when I finally landed one. When when I knew that psychically and emotionally I had just said I don't care. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. 10,000 No's is a roadmap built by guests who have blazed trails, silenced critics, and overcome the odds by facing down their fears and transforming their failures into fuel. I don't care if you're young or old, healthy or sick, there is always an opportunity for growth. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back to 10,000 No's, and thank you for being here yet again. I've been blown away by the deeply personal responses to the past few weeks' solo episodes. Thanks to those of you who have taken the time to write to me and share how this show has helped you make drastic positive shifts in your life. It's so cool for me to hear this. But today, we shift back to the interview format with actor Jeff Perry. Many of you likely know Jeff as the strategically conniving, power-hungry Cyrus Bean opposite Kerry Washington and Tony Goldwyn on Shonda Rhimes' smash hit Scandal. Full disclosure, I met Jeff when I played the sex worker who was being paid to get dirt on him but eventually became his husband after we got married in the White House. Yep, pretty typical life for a TV character. Others of you may know Jeff as Meredith Grey's father on Shonda Rhimes' other smash hit, Grey's Anatomy, but the truth is Jeff has been around forever, and what you may not know is that he is one of the founding members of the famed and respected Steppenwolf Theater Company alongside high school pal Gary Sinise, Terry Kinney, and college friends John Malkovich, Joan Allen, and Lori Metcalf, among others. Lots of cool stories about that. One of the many things I learned from working with Jeff on Scandal is that he is deeply passionate about the work. This conversation is full of his love for stories that matter and a craft that he respects deeply. Lessons on perseverance, following your bliss over a paycheck, and how to stay true to oneself are littered throughout our chat. Here he is, Jeff Perry. I fell in love with acting, man. Uh, uh, a high school teacher grabbed Gary Sinise and I from our academic confusion mediocrity in a hallway and put us in uh, West Side Story when we were 15 years old-ish, our sophomore year of high school. Uh, her genius and enthusiasm and, and, and teaching ability um, and the very act of being in uh, this teamwork thing that was putting on a musical uh, it, it grabbed us uh, um, by the throat, and we kind of never looked back. We knew, you know, we knew we had found, we thought we had found our calling, and sure enough, we, we did. And that was at, like, age 15. And that's in Illinois. Yeah, and this was in a suburb, Highland Park, Illinois, a suburb um, about 30 minutes north of uh, the city. Yeah. And you, you told me a great story uh, about going off to college uh, and you met uh, some other actors that everyone is now familiar with. And then 
Sinise was back home. Uh, could you could you give us that story uh, of kind of the origins of what eventually became Steppenwolf? Yeah. So, um, as Gary and I are in our senior year, somebody comes to Gary and says, "Dude, you you've paid so much attention to." play practice and so little attention to classes, you got to do at least six more months, you know, year four and a half to get a high school diploma. And I knew I was going off to Illinois State University. Um, uh, I didn't know what I was going to find there, but I'd been offered a tuition waiver, which made it, um, you know, uh, a year cost like hundreds of dollars to, to be able to go to school. Books and McDonald's, you know, basically. It was all I had to pay for. And um, and I'd seen one play at this university theater department. That's all I knew about it. But they had accepted me and made it almost free, and I was really excited. So it was about two hours away from uh, Chicago, south, in normal Illinois. Well, in normal Illinois, I'd meet... <laughs> <laughs> wonderful, abnormal people. Um, John Malkovich, uh, Alan Wilder, Laurie Metcalf, Rondi Reed, Francis Guinan, H.E. Uh, um, uh, Bacchus, a uh, man named Dan Orsini, Nancy Evans, uh, all these folks who would, in what became the first about five years of Steppenwolf's existence, I'll go back to kind of how it started. This was the first generation or two, and they're pretty much all had an Illinois State University connection um, with, e with each other. So Gare in Rage and Boredom starts a community theater, and one of our high school mates, his and mine, a guy named Rick Argush, had been reading Herman Hesse's book, and they thought, that's a cool name. Let's call ourselves Steppenwolf Theater. Um, this is like the, the uh, uh, summer of 1973. They would end up doing four or five plays, I think four, and the third of the fourth was Gary calling me down at school in my freshman year and going, hey, this summer, man, let's do Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead by Stoppard. Um, I said, okay, oh, great. Well, listen, you have a new co-best friend. Um, you're going to meet him. His name's Terry Kinney, and I'm going to ask him to do it, and we'll all do it, and Tara and I can live it at my folks' house, and um, it'd be great. And it, indeed, we did do that in the summer of 1974. You know, just kind of uh, 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 the guy who had named the theater, who was, who was um, younger than Gary and I and had just finished his high school, he directed it. We used a little neighboring um, Unitarian church. Um, and... Gary played Rosencrantz, I played Guildenstern, Terry played The Player, Rick Argosh directed it. We worked on it for maybe three weeks or something and did four performances. And we were in love with the whole thing, kind of like usual. And and we, we all, Gary and Terry and I remember this little moment of hating to let go of you know, uh, 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 of the moment and wishing we had planned to have more performances or something. But after the last one, maybe on a Sunday night, we're sitting on this little out, outdoor bench at church and at the Unitarian Church 
in Deerfield, Illinois. And um, we'd made a promise to each other. Okay, look, Gary said, you've told me all about your different classmates, John and Lori and this and that. Many of you are going to be graduating um, by the summer of 76. Uh, So let's get this back together. Um, we said, definitely. Okay, great. Well, nothing, nothing practical like, you know, real employment or, uh, any better idea supplanted that, you know, by the, by, by two years later, the summer of 76. So, uh, Gary had found yet another church connected little space, what used to be a youth center of the Immaculate Conception Church School in Highland Park. And... Um, seven of us got in a few cars and drove from Normal, Illinois to Highland Park. And we started working in the basement. Um, everybody had jobs. Lori and Joan Allen were, had pretty mad typing skills. So they had the best jobs. They were like almost paralegals or legal assistants or something. John Malkovich drove a bus for the Solomon Schechter Day School, as did Al Wilder. I've always wondered what kind of therapy those young, those young, you know, <laughs> little, little kids dealt with after John drove their bus. But that's an amazing um, yeah. vision. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Gary and I worked at the local, uh, uh, the neighboring suburb North, Northbrook Court in Northbrook, Illinois. The the the, the food the food court and the shopping mall. He was on the um, loading dock of uh, Neiman Marcus. I worked at a place called Egg Rolls, et cetera, run by a really sweet man of Polish heritage who I don't think had ever tasted Chinese food. Um, uh, 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 oh, I mean this with all love. It was horrible Chinese food. And... Um, but uh, we all had we all had day jobs and and nights and weekends we just wail away at doing play after play after play in this little basement. Yeah, yeah. that's how it started. And it was and and there were no. It was just what you saw next was what was in front of you. Let's just get together. Yeah. Let's do the work. It wasn't this grand vision of what it ended up becoming. No, not at all. Yeah, no, not it was at all. Just about the work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which is. Uh, you know, knowing you, having worked with you for a while, that is, I think of you as the, the consummate workhorse actor. You really care. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not surprising knowing that, hearing that again, you've told me a version of this story. Uh, I, I kind of love that because there are so many theater companies started all over the place that have these, you know, well, let's, you know, let's get our logo and let's get, you know, all the things that don't have to do with the work. And you guys really made it about the work. And it's, uh, it's one of the best uh, that's out there. that's lasted. That's. Yeah. I think one of the, one of the, one of the um, sources that, that in kind of quick hindsight, Matt, I read, we, I think we all realized was crucial that there was this coincidence with Gary and I in a public high school program with this overzealous, incredibly ambitious, uh, um, talented English slash drama teacher kind of pushing the edges so that she created almost like an undergrad program in a public high school. There were directing classes. There was a theater history class. There was a technical theater class. All of this in what was not a performing arts high school or a magnet school. It was just a public high school where she kept 
um, enthuse, in, she just, her enthusiasm just created this stuff in the 12 years that she taught there. Well, at Illinois State, it was also true that, that this very eccentric, very talented, wonderful faculty of about six to eight uh, um, teachers, they had created a curriculum where like a third of our stuff was, okay, you guys, you figure out what you want to do, figure out who you want to work with, what kind of material you like, um, the lights, the sound, the set, the da, 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 da. We have a smaller space. You can do it in a classroom. You can do it wherever. But but a good chunk of your of your work is going to be peer found and peer directed, you know? Yeah. Um, so that deciding to take that little thread from, from Jeff, Terry, and Gary of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern as a summer, you know, moment. And it, it, it was, there were ways in which it was kind of a no-brainer. Oh, we already love doing this. Interestingly, none of those humans was like, no, I'm going to New York or Los Angeles or London or whatever, and I'm going to be a star, period. That's what I'm doing. That's a nice idea, your, your little summer camp theater, but uh, I don't want to do that. But instead, the, the people who gravitated toward each other had already had this giant hit of loving the communication between each other. The collaboration of doing a play. Yeah. And later in amateur psychoanalysis, I would say these people also needed to recreate family. Yeah. <laughs> together. Yeah. You know? Um, which was one of the, one of the glues of why we came together, I think. Well, I'm I'm thinking something that, you know, they don't teach in a scene study class. In the scene study class, a lot of times it's you're handed this thing and then you work on it and it creates a passive attitude toward the work in in a certain way. Yeah. Whereas it sounds like one of the muscles all of you were building together was choosing, whether that's, you know, choosing the material, choosing the space, choosing how to light it. Yeah. You know, which really leads into a career of ending, you know, eventually choosing your roles, choosing your path as much as you can. Yes. But really having a voice about what it is that you, what stories you want to get behind and what tone you want to get behind. Yep. For sure. For sure. That the, the, the self-determinative ground of all that that we were just talking about was gigantic. Self-determination in our profession, Matt, as you know, it can be really hard to create. It can be really hard to realize you even have that option, you know, because so much of our life is standing in a line or in an audition room and 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 waiting to be given permission to work, and instead this was no, we'll just no, we're going to create the work. It may not pay anything, as it didn't for the better part of three years, and then we started to be able to pay ourselves like seventy-five bucks a week or a hundred bucks a week, and but uh, 
but yeah, that was gigantic and, and, and crucial was that those first years and the groundwork and the expectation of self-determination. And later, we'll, we'll get into it, I'm sure, a little bit, but uh, at different times of my life, because now it's many decades <laughs> removed from, uh, um, I'm talking about when I was 22 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, and I'm 63 now. So there have been many, many, many times where I felt really challenged and very much in the territory of, I can't get my hands on the work I love doing. I'm not being given permission. I don't have the allowance. I don't have the access. And those beginnings always would come back to me. And a, a main thing that those time periods, those most challenging ones of work starvation, you know, turned into, Matt, what for me was teaching. Maybe in our second year in our little Highland Park basement, John Malkovich and I, out of curiosity, but mostly out of we need bus fare, you know, um, put together a little scene study class. Um, I ended up quite loving it. John would do it a bit over the next few years, but he would also start to get paid work before almost any of us <laughs> and, um, you know, acting work. And, um, and I just, I loved whether I had any business or even still have much business teaching, I loved it. I loved turning my chair in the opposite direction, sitting, you know, five, 10 feet away and kind of helping actors try to see possibilities. What's different from your first instincts? And what if we go back and study a little bit more? What is the script giving us? And then what are the different opportunities, you know, here? Yeah. I've just loved that process. Yeah. For forever. By acting class. And and so so teaching and it's kind of a ten dollar operation very often the way I've practiced it, Matt. Um rent a room, you know, for a hundred bucks, uh try to get ten to fourteen humans together, do two person scene study usually, and um and help a tiny bit with the rent or the mortgage, you know. Uh, um, but mostly keep my heart alive so that I'm not getting anything this month or this, these three months, I'm not doing the acting I love doing, but this week I did get to mess around with Chekhov's Seagull or Carol Churchill's, you know, cloud nine or David Mamet's this and that, or, yeah. you, you know, yeah. um, and it, and it always, it, it, it was always gigantic in, always has been gigantic in, yeah, keeping my heart alive. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I had told you, I had, I had done that for uh, a little bit and I've actually thought of it recently thinking, huh, I kind of miss it in a way. There were, I had more actors on the beginning side, but did the same thing. Just, you know, rented a theater in Hollywood and yeah. uh, once one night a week teach about, 10 people yep. and found the same thing, just working on the material, yeah. just 
it, it keeps you alive and it keeps you sharpening the saw and also how much you learn from watching others and, and just talking about the work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you mentioned something about, um, everybody's staying in Illinois, not going to New York or, or LA. Uh, Malkovich started to get paid, you know, mm-hmm. earlier than everybody else. Mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about the, what you found when you did start making making money, uh, your relationship to the work on those jobs was it uh, was it a different animal? Was it a whole new muscle that you needed to um, develop to to deal with? Okay, now I have work. Let's you know Nash Bridges. You said went yeah. for what? Yeah, six, like six years. Six, six yeah. years. You know, what were the different challenges that came up and how did you overcome them? And did you feel the need to go back to Steppenwolf and back to this original core group of artists to relight the fire or how did that work? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, I was, when I, when I, when I landed Nash Bridges, it was coming off what felt like months, God knows, might have been sort of years, something, where I felt like, ah, my solo actorness in Los Angeles is in such gigantic contrast to the joy I felt in uh, Chicago growing up, where even if it paid almost nothing, there was, as we talked about, self-determined bliss of work that I was passionate about. You know, the source might have been Steinbeck or, as we said, Carol Churchill or, you know, Arthur Miller, on and on and on of, of amazing stories and, and, and work with mates that I... Uh, was so amused by and in such respect of and challenged by. So it was a fairly, um, uh, uh, I would find, you know, I think most actors would say, well, that's a very pretty rarefied territory to be able to spend much time in. That's hard. That's hard to find. Yeah. And when I started knocking on doors and just auditioning as a solo human, many times if, uh, I remember writing a, uh, a dear uh, high school English teacher uh, named Mark Allison, and, and he said, how's it going, Jeff? How you doing out there? You know, I'm always plugging for you. And I said, Mark, I feel like I'm, I'm only able to get the bottom of the potato chip bag, you know, those horrible little crumbles <laughs> that are not satisfying. And... Um, and then he's like, hang in, hang in. So I get Nash Bridges. How old are you when you get Nash Bridges? About 35 okay. ish, something like that. And let's see, 70, summer 76, 22, 86, 32. Oh, so yeah. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, 34, 35, something like that. And, um, I'm amazed at the remuneration. Wait, wait, wait. Is this is a hundred times or something what I've ever made? Wait, 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 wait. I know I can I can pay the 
I could pay the rent. I could pay the rent for a whole year based on this order of six episodes or something. Yeah. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm going to live in San Francisco and I can use Southwest Airlines like it's a uh, an Uber that didn't even exist yeah. in the <laughs> era we're talking about. Um, be home in 55 minutes. Anytime I have like more than a day and a half off or something, there were many things about it that were uh, uh, amazing. One, one of the artistic things that was amazing was that it was destined to be my film school as an actor. That I, the short gigs, whether it's a guest star or maybe a recurring or slightly recurring... I never met had been able to kind of drop my shoulders craft-wise and have the calm or vision or patience or lack of nerves to enjoy the difference between the stage work that I'd grown up with and the camera work that I was doing in the short gigs as a visitor on other people's sets. Being a regular with a lot more hours of time, practice, and that giant um, emotional thing of, you've got to check. No one's kicking you out. I don't think anybody's going to fire you. You don't have to look over your shoulder. You know, da-da-da-da. Um, it allowed me to begin to love, learn and love camera work. And whatever was different about the, 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 the things that are different about, about the craft. Storytelling is storytelling. Trying to embody someone and empathize with someone as a character is, is, is common. Um, and then there's a, lot, a thousand little differences yeah. in sheer protocol and habit and how to use your energy. And, and something being photographed versus something being live. Yeah. So... So that those were all giant positives. A a negative man was I felt this growing distance of uh, oh you got spoiled dude you got spoiled you spent your whole twenties doing stuff you love and not to be mean but you wouldn't even you wouldn't even bother to watch this show. And in fact, you don't bother to watch it, even though it's paying you, you know, because you don't care about it. Yeah. And that was a real hard, sort of hard disconnect to get used to. And I remember feeling this, uh, hearing this internal voice of, welcome to civilization, man. Don't, don't 95% of people humans have to do work that they're not really in love with so that they can have a roof over their head and a grocery and maybe a partner and maybe kids and stuff like that. So, you know, grab your lunch pail and, and do the job, you know, this is what people have had to do all the time. And, and so that was a basically not, not immediate, but a pretty successful self you know, cheerleading, yeah, kind of voice. Um, with with that, uh, 
But what I did do, somewhere in those middle of those Nash Bridges years, Matt, was um, that that needing that connection and needing that work that the, the, the filled more of me. I got on the phone to my mates back at Steppenwolf, who I know love teaching, and said, you guys, do you think we could start a, a summer school that could add something to American actor training that isn't absolutely redundant and kind of get at what we've barely articulated to ourselves, which is how does a group of actors find the story in the quality of their communication and how do they make each other better? Uh, kind of like a ball team that's Almost, it's not like we didn't have directors, but almost like a ball team where if anybody's a basketball fan in this audience, uh, 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 um, Phil Jackson, you would sometimes be amazed. How can he win like nine or 10 or whatever championships and almost never get off the bench and the team will be in absolute trouble and he, he, he refuses to move. It's like they will get themselves out of it because of how we've practiced in ways you haven't seen, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. And um, that's in a way what Steppenwolf always hoped to do. It was very player led storytelling. Yeah. A group of actors telling the story in real time. Um, and uh, so I missed that like crazy. And they all said, yes, let's try. Some of my mates. And I was back there a couple of weeks ago, but in, and it's in its 23rd year of a continuing experiment with about 20 to 24 students at any time. Generally, it's like a early-ish career pit stop for these actors. They might be 26 to 28 years old, yeah. uh, the majority. And, and out of school long enough that they're missing sheer practice. Um, yeah. And it, it, uh, it's that that's been really joyful, and at sort of the same time in those Nash years, Tom Irwin and I found ourselves calling our artistic director and saying, "Can we teach classes in the West Coast?" Or actually, no, it was, it was quite a bit later than that, because um, that's twenty three years old. We're maybe fifteen years ago. Tom and I called Steppenwolf and said, "We love teaching. We're out here." And the West Coast, most of the time, can can we do it under the umbrella of Steppenwolf? And our artistic director, who's in showbiz heaven, named Martha Levy, she passed uh, this last year or so. But she she paused and she said, you guys, do I have to do anything? And we laughed. No, no, no. This will not add to your task list. Um, we think we can do it. We, th we think we can do it for a hundred bucks and we'll have insurance waivers so nobody gets hurt. And, yeah. da -da. and she said, yes, please have fun. Da -da -da. That's great. Yeah. Well, yeah. tell me, tell me about between just timeline wise, when you were in your early twenties, yeah. uh, working with that whole crew of actors, yeah. yeah. what did Nash Bridges lead you out or you already had moved out here? How, like, how did that work? Yeah, I, I had when already. did you start making a living as an actor or starting to get any uh -huh. kind of supplement uh -huh. you're living? Uh -huh. Was that in the Midwest or did you come out here, like make a decision to come out and branch away from everybody? What was that? The, you know, the we 
we, like I said, we started, uh, Garantara and I had that little moment in the summer of 1974 and then 1976, a group of, you know, like eight of us. And then by, by, uh, 79, 80, it became about 13 of us. Um, and by 82, three, four, five, 86, all the way to 89, the theater moved shows, True West to Off-Broadway, and a Nightingale sang to the Lincoln Center, Orphans to Off-Broadway, Bomb and Gilead to Off-Broadway, The Grapes of Wrath to Broadway, uh, all between about eight, 82 and 89. And all of that led to actually making almost a living off a of theater. Yeah. Uh, both in Chicago and in New York. Um, the, those, those years, or at least for part of the year. Yeah. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? And, and, uh, so, th- so that was kind of a segue. Um, f- also in those years from 82 to like 89, the original, Certain people from the first and second generation of the company started to get television and film work. And and I felt like I was one of the last to crack that. And part of it was, ah, what? I don't know what, man. Sentimental, um, diehard communist something. I felt like I was holding on to the mast of this old sailboat. I was artistic director at times of the theater. And, and that I really, and it could have been some fear, could have been some immaturity. It could have been, uh, uh, an idealized something, you know, Matt, but I was like one of the last to individuate into, Go get that kind of work. Yeah. Um, and the attendant life change that that is. Because I'd watched my ex-wife, Lori Metcalf, get the Roseanne Barr TV show, um, which would lead to, what, nine or ten years of her life. Yeah. And her ability to call me, like, in year two um, and say, I want you to know, I just want you to know, I've got Zoe's college put away. And Zoe's like five or something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And um, uh, so, you know, I had the experience of all that. Yeah. And seeing John Malkovich uh, get nominated for Robert Benton's Places in the Heart uh, for an Academy Award, you know, all in those, all in those years, all interesting things going on. And... Uh, didn't, uh, um, uh, didn't suffer from, well, we can talk about that too. I didn't suffer from horrible comparison. I was just kind of like, I love, but I love this. I love this circus life. I love the yeah. carny life that go. is the theater. I just yeah. didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. But then I just sort of needed to, um, uh, I needed to be in the same town as our daughter, Zoe. And Laura was 
becoming ensconced in, in, in the Roseanne world. So I came out here, met my wife amazingly and, and buddy, it was, it felt like a few years of a lot of trial and error, getting a little something, yeah, not getting much of anything, you know, da, 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 trying to throw up some classes, um, and they try to stay alive as I watched my very talented wife work pretty steadily and build her, her casting director career. And thank God, because it always kept a roof over our heads, no matter how I was doing. You Linda know? Lowy, by the way. Yeah, Lin- Linda Lowy. Great casting director. And, um, and so I'm trying to remember your question, brother. But but yeah, so so you know there were really there were really rough times there uh, before I got before I got this 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 first series regular. And what what shifted for you when when you came you, out you know, of that you know, experience? When it, you know you know and I, I want to answer what you just said, but I often say this to myself and to acting students. What shifted from a what felt like a pretty long period of of getting nowhere and landing that gig, I was so deeply fatigued <laughs> and so deeply not able to give a shit anymore about what the auditioners wanted. I, uh, the, so I kind of closed a loop and I know everybody who has to audition for gigs will, will get this. Um, and, and is, is it, I, I kind of closed, got rid of that. What you come to find out is completely unhelpful, damaging, um, energy of, oh, Matt's written this film and he's auditioning me and what does he want? I'm going to try to figure out what he wants and give it to him. Versus what's interesting to me in this material is this, yeah. and I'm going to do it and I don't give a shit whether they like it or not. Um, so were you saying you were deeply fatigued Prior to getting Nash Bridges or after the six years on Nash Bridges? You were prior to. Prior to. Prior to. And that's when I finally landed and that's when I finally landed after after many attempts at landing that kind of job. Yeah. That's when I finally landed one. When when I knew that psychically and emotionally I had just said, I don't care. I don't care if I get it. But today I am gonna do something that interests me. Yeah. And I always remember, oh shit, remember that, you fool. Remember that lesson, you know? Do you ever forget it these days? Yeah. Yeah, sometimes I'm kind of, like I don't do much voiceover and I've been trying to do it. I've been trying to do it, getting nowhere, but enjoying myself here and there. And sometimes because it's new territory, I'm I'm in that guessing game of, oh, I think they want this, you know, yeah. and this and that. And, and I just say, that never got you anywhere. Quit it. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about, I want to talk about scandal because I think a lot of, uh, a lot of your fans 
know you from yeah. Scandal. That's where I know you. That's where yeah. we met. Yeah. Um, you played Cyrus Bean brilliantly. Uh, tell me a little bit about that. You were on Grey's Anatomy, also a Shonda Rhimes show. Did that lead, did you have any inkling of that leading to scandal? Was it just, what, what was the process of, of that? Like how did, how did Grey's Anatomy come about? So my wife, casting director, Linda Lowy and Shonda met each other courtesy of an ABC executive or an ABC studios, ABC studios executive. Shoot. I should remember, but at any rate, this is now 16-ish, 17 years ago. And I marked the time by the fact that, as you and I were talking today, Matt, Grey's Anatomy, the first thing that they ever worked together on, um, is is um, working at the beginning of its 16th season right now. That's crazy. Crazy, right? And, and Linda had come off of almost all film work in her previous, whatever it was, 15 years uh, as a casting director. And in the previous couple of years had had a big handful of projects lose their financing or never get off the ground. And it was uh, not just her so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't singular bad luck for for Linda or something she was doing wrong it was uh the whole swath of the industry changing yeah to what would become with exceptions a few rarefied wonderful indie Indies being made, and then Spider-Man 7, 17, 14, Avengers 23, you know, da-da-da-da, right? Giant tentpole things and a, and a few Indies. And it felt like the middle class of film uh, largely was vanishing. And indeed, that would go on for years, as you, as you and I know. Um, and people of... My generation of Matt's generation, dear audience, you know, you, you've seen it. People who only did film, uh, actors, directors, writers, who'd only done film before, all started flocking toward television. Um, and uh, so Linda did that too. So she meets Shonda. She says, uh, it was called Surgeons before it was called Grey's Anatomy. And she said, I don't want to do a cop show or a doctor show. I don't even want to do TV. Oh, God dang it. Um, I, I, I'm not going to do something called Surgeons. And they said, please meet this woman. I really think Linda and Shonda hit it off like crazy. And it's led to the last six, 17 years of Linda's life. And Linda casting absolutely everything. Uh, under the Shonda umbrella and just starting Shonda's, the, the, the show Shonda has written for Netflix called the Anna Delvey story. They, they started like days ago. Yeah. Um, and, 
Where were we going with that, man? Oh, I was just asking you the the link between, you know, how Gray's came about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gray's, Gray's into scandal. Right. Okay, Gray's into scandal. So, so Linda's at the very beginning of Gray's. They're thinking about the pilot. I'm in um, sweatpants and a, and a shirt full of paint and stuff. Um, and I'm moving boxes from our car into her little bungalow, you know, 30, 30 yards or so from Shonda's office on Pro, in the, at Prospect Studios. And I walk back to the car. Linda would later tell me that Shonda came running toward her. And she said, I'd never seen Shonda run. It was, I knew she was excited. What was up? And Shonda said, I, that is so, I hate this business. I hate this business. That's one of my favorite actors, Linda, from Chicago. Shonda grew up uh, in the suburbs of Chicago and she saw a lot of Steppenwolf stuff. I would later find out. Didn't, I didn't know that. And, uh, um, and now he's moving furniture. That is so <laughs> fucked up, Linda. And, and um, Linda said, honey, that's my husband. I've told you that. Jeff's my husband. He it. Oh, God, you have told me that. Oh, I'm sorry, honey. Oh, good. Okay. And Shonda said, well, we should get him in the, we should get him into, into Gray's somehow. We should get him into Gray's. And Linda said, oh, from your lips, because I'm not allowed to say that. That's nepotism 101. Right. Um, and, and Linda said, oh, hey, how about, uh, how about like, uh, TR's dad? They're both Midwestern boys. They have kind of round faces. Um, that could be, that could be cool. And Shonda's looking at her and you see the wheels going. She goes, nah, yeah, uh, not. TR's dad. And then something more pressing, they weren't going to solve this in that yeah. moment. And something yeah. more pressing took over the conversation. Like six months later, I get offered Meredith Gray's dad when Kate Burton has already established a recurring as Meredith Gray's mom, a famous, a uber famous surgeon in her own right, who is now struggling with Alzheimer's, is being attended by T.R. Knight. And in her Alzheimer's, Kate Burton's character, Meredith's mom, mistake, mistakes T.R., for the character I'm about to play, her husband. And I always thought, oh, that is so cool. I love writers. Linda had a perfectly good casting director idea, yeah. but it was a little too on the nose for Shonda. And so she gave it a double half flip twist. Yep. So it wouldn't be so on the nose, ultimately, of how I could be used in Grey's Anatomy. And I went on to do 20, 25 episodes over a number of seasons. By the time Scandal was birthed, I read it as casting director husband in our bed with no, uh, not a thought really, 
Certainly not a hope, not a thought of ever being in it. Because Shonda had a completely understandable contract with their audience of, I'm not going to cross-pollinate between my shows. If they've loved Thatcher Gray or Meredith Gray or da-da-da-da-da, I mean, you know, um, I'm not going to pull their brains and imagination out um, into, an, into a new character. It, it doesn't make sense to me. So... I was just a fan of the script, and I and I wrote Shonda, and I said, "You have created. I can't. I I can't put this down. I'm turning the pages like it's the best romance novel thriller. D t d t t. It's killing me. I am so excited for you and Linda. This is going to be amazing. And um, and weeks later." They've auditioned a, maybe a dozen people my age, Matt, for Cyrus. And Linda's, one of Linda's partners at the time, Will Stewart, who's gone on to uh, uh, his own casting career, um, but a partner at the time, said, Linda, I know it's against the rules. I know it's sort of the cross-pollination. And I know it's hard to ever bring up Jeff anyway for you, for things. It, we're not finding anybody we love. He, I think he would kill this. And he went to Sean and Linda said, okay, you tell her, you, 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 you say it. Cause I, I don't, I don't feel comfortable. And well said, Shauna, I, I, it's been like a year and a half since Grace ever saw him. Yeah. Um, and we, what, what do you think about giving this a try? Mm. Next day she comes in. Well, now I can't get it out of my head. Would Jeff read it? He doesn't need to read for me. I know he can do anything. I, uh, he need, but he'd need to read for ABC brass type people. And I said, are you kidding? Of course I will. I came in. Shonda, Betsy, me, Linda did a little, uh, uh, one little scene. I don't even know if it ended up in, in the pilot, Matt. But uh, but it already had Cyrus's voice in it. And hours later, next morning, something, Shonda said, let me give you my translation of the ABC note, because I think it's a pretty good one. Less lovely professor and more Ram Emanuel. Um, to a Chicagoan, I kind of, I already, I, I got what that note was. Ram Emanuel was uh, um, yeah. Clinton's... Um, chief of staff and then yet to become the mayor of Chicago. But I knew he was an assassin. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> a political assassin. So it was like faster, tougher, yeah. butch this shit up, you know, da, 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 da. Yeah. And, um, it was apparently the right adjustment. Yeah. Yeah. And it led to, um, I've never, this was a confluence that you can kind of go, oh, wow, man. If this aspect of my work life never gets better, I'm not going to be a baby. And um, I'm not going to be horribly ungrateful or, 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 or a horrible little pig and, and, and deny that this was heavenly, you know? Um, because, uh, Matt, 
you know, we got to do so much together. You could tell how much I loved it. Um, it was just, I felt like I was seen, like it was somebody writing at the peak of her powers, really loving doing so, kept seeing things in us actors and kind of creating challenges in the stories for us, not just as an acting challenge, but she followed her story brain and it inherently had beautiful, you know, challenges in it. And that culture um, that you and I felt, Matt, uh, of those people led by Carrie's tremendous citizenship and, yeah. uh, you know, an artisthood as the first one to work seven, you know, the, after working 17 hours, the very first one to thank the three extras or the, or the hundred extras that were working that day. Yeah. She's awesome. You know, she's I mean, awesome. She set the tone. She set the tone. For me, so yeah. welcoming. And that's one thing people often ask about Scandal. I didn't realize when Linda gave me that job, I did not realize how gigantic of a, of a hit it was. And once I did it, realized how obsessed people were. So people will ask about it. And I, I always say, I've been on a bunch of different sets. That scandal set was one of the happiest in terms of everyone there that was a regular was really appreciative and grateful to be there. And I didn't start till I think the fourth season, nobody was checked out. Everybody was really grateful to be there. The table reads were amazing. People banging on the tables and cheering when people were introduced. I've never experienced that kind of, it's like a pep rally almost. (laughs) And, and then Carrie, like you said, when number one on the call sheet has such a great attitude, you know, everybody falls in line. Falls in line, man. And it, it really was, uh, amazing experience. And you, and you could tell, I mean, you could just tell from the people that were there all the time, yourself included, uh, it, it, you expressed that to me a lot while we were there. You were very aware of how great it was. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have to be in the business very long. You know, Katie Lowe's was in her late twenties when she first got it, but you don't have to be in business very long. It can be like three gigs. And when it's that confluence of good fortune, um, and good chemistry, you just go, Ooh, Ooh, don't F this up. (laughs) Savor it. Yeah. Savor it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you did not know when you started playing Cyrus for how many episodes? About six. He, six episodes yeah. before it was revealed that he was gay. Yeah. Um, I experienced, you know, on that show, people after the, the marriage in the White House online, people saying, thank you for telling my story. How did that factor into... Did it factor into it? How did it factor into it? Did you feel a responsibility to a particular segment of the population? Did it, it was it just like, this is just another aspect of, of this character? Did that play into anything in any way? Yeah, there were a few levels uh, of reaction for me, Matt. Um, one was instantly pragmatic of, whoa, 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 shit, shit, wait, wait. I quickly... Uh, came to an unsurprising conclusion because she's so smart and she wouldn't have done this otherwise. Shonda, have we contradicted anything that you're about to do with me being gay 
in the previous episodes. No, no, we haven't. Um, and then the, and then a real smile, man, you know, an appreciation of, oh, I love how you did that, man. Uh, Rashonda, love how you did that. You introduced to already a pretty big audience the fact that this character is gay by having my husband answer the door to Carrie Washington's character. No more explanation, yep. fanfare, or anything. And, and, a, and a rather aggressive, I'm not going to explain this. You will find it out the way we do find out things. Yeah. You know, by going to a party and going, oh, he has a husband. Oh, okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. It's really perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and it, and it perfect. tells, I mean, what, a, <laughs> what an efficient way to tell that story of, it doesn't matter. It's another aspect. It, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's you yeah. know. It's, and it's what Shonda was, it's a um, unforced and conscious societal and political agenda of Shonda's of, I didn't grow up with the difference between black people and white people being um, the giant thing among my peers and my friends. And I didn't grow up with sexual preference being the giant thing. It was one of many things. Right. You know what I mean? And so that's, that's the world I want to talk about. You know, that's, yeah. that's how I want to deal with this world. And I ended up um, loving any sense of responsibility of somebody saying, you know, uh, anyone underrepresented, gay, transsexual, you know, uh, um, any any un, any underrepresented in our popular culture, culture human, um, you, you, you know so quickly that it means such a great deal to have images of yourself. Yeah. Um, for the world to say, "I see you. Uh, I, I know you." I value you, you know, um, you're here, just you're here, Yeah, <laughs> you know? Uh, so I, I always dug that, man. I always, I always dug that. And I had felt that a bit, Jesus, Matt, 20 some years prior, 30, I don't know how many years prior, played, played the gay English teacher in my so-called life. And... And I remember high school theater students, to be absolutely specific about it, going, it meant so much to me that you encouraged the the gay kid at the high school, you know, to be in the school play, you know, or whatever. And um, so I had felt that, uh, I had felt that power in in different ways. And it was a very, it was a really happy responsibility, you know, to try to, but you know, there's, there wasn't, 
I didn't have to try to be a boy scout or a role model no. or well, that anything. Was one of the things I you know, that's the thing about. is, is that it, well, I admired about Shonda's writing. She said, I'm going to make these people tremendously fucked up. Complex. Uh, they're going to well, be complex. What I, what I loved yeah. was your, your character was, I mean, in some ways diabolical. Yes. And in some ways, very lovable and vulnerable. Yeah. And you got to play all these different colors. Yeah. So it wasn't, you were not put into a box in any way, shape, or form. And that's a combo of great writing and great performance. And it was, for me, to be able to act opposite you was, you know, a joy. Um, Vice versa. Of the, uh, there's like six um, audience, listen, there's like six little pieces from all those years that I, that I, treasure on a little reel I have. And one of them is with Matt and me. Oh, really? After I've been beat up uh, and we're talking about, uh, I could have, what kind of president I could have, I could have been. Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. The word no means what to you? <sighs> There's times when it has meant, uh, oh, great, great. You failed. You, okay, you failed again. Um, uh, why does your wife have to um, pay the entire uh, uh, freight of you guys living, you know? Um, why are your, why are people you grew up with um, doing better than you? There, There were ways in which I took that no at a certain time in my life um and it was kind of prior to getting nash bridges a few years before when comparison to people i love gary sinise or joan allen or laurie or or uh, uh john malkovich or whatever um comparison led to uh 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 real darkness, you know, jealousy. And I had never, I had somehow escaped that kind of miraculously for a long time, a giant extended adolescence and 20s, you know, where there was no need for comparison, I was I was hap- happy, satisfied, and then that feeling of disparity, and I, the only thing I it it drove me to a psychiatrist and a therapy that I would that, that I would uh, um, learn from for like the next five years, and it was really a, a comparison, envy, jealousy, because I knew. Um, it was, it was the, one of the most hateful things I'd ever felt because there's no way to, there's no way to justify it. Wait, you love these people. You admire these people. You respect these people. Yeah. Your circumstances are different. And yet this is really growing in you. And, uh, therapy luckily would go, oh no, that's just one of 73 things you got to deal with (laughs) here in your (laughs) thirties, you know, that you haven't looked at. You know, yeah. you know, and yeah. we'll go back to parents and grandparents and all sorts of shit, <laughs> siblings and, you know, da, 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 da. Yeah. but, uh, but it was, um, I'm grateful for it now, you know, uh, uh, but no meant that for a while. Yeah. 
Yeah. And do you have a a go-to mantra or some kind of routine when everything seems to be falling apart, when you feel like, uh, you know, I don't know that you ever experience this anymore, but God, I'm never going to work again or whatever it may be that you're dealing with in your life. Could be a family thing, could be a health thing. Do you have a, a go-to mantra that gets you through? Uh, in sheer work terms and acting, because it's such a giant source of, of um, my particular reason for being here, um, the word interest, does this interest me? Is this compelling to me? What's compelling to me? What is interesting to me? And, and then a phrase, let it be this time. The, that word and that phrase help me in really practical slash spiritual ways <laughs> to get out of my head, get out of living in, uh, I've got to execute something that I had done in the past versus where I am in this moment. Um, I've got to please this person, these people, this, 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 uh, versus all you have to, the best you have to offer is what truly engages you. That's what you have to express through this empathy with a character, through the story that you've been given, da, 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 da. So remember that. So, yeah, those two things yeah. help me. Yeah. And last question. If you could give advice to your younger self, what age would you intervene and what would the advice be? <sighs> I don't know if I'm... Um, just a softy about, I think I like to be easy on myself or something, you know, because all the struggles to me, whenever I try to picture, it feels slightly unreal to me to try to picture me figuring it out any sooner than I did or going through the horseshit that I had to go through, you know, personally. So I... I I don't know how that could have changed. There's a great line in a play I got to do, man, by William Saroyan, the Armenian-American writer. It's called Time of Your Life. And I got to play a character who says a version of, it takes a long time for a person to become themselves. And it's advice he's giving to a younger friend in this play. Um... And I found that to be true, man. Took took a lot, lot of decades to be calmer and not second guess so many things. I you love know? that. That's yeah. that's this whole show. You yeah. got to go through your ten thousand no's to get. Yeah, the, you know, everybody 
takes the lumps in one yeah. way, shape, or form. Yeah. Ironically, William Saroyan, Hello Out There, was the first play I ever did. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's cool. Listen, I, I, I could I could talk to you forever. I want to be respectful of your time. Jeff Perry, thank you so much for being sitting down with me. Um, if you want to let anybody know what's up next, I can put it in the show notes. I really just appreciate you sharing your story with oh. us. And I know my audience will be very, very psyched. I've lo- I love it, man. I love being with you, man. I uh, love acting with you. love talking to you. Um, two things that I hope will happen that have been lovely passion projects of the last year. Uh, a very talented director, actor, teacher named Rob Clare has asked me to play King Lear and we're trying to fashion a production that would pay a really good equity, actor's equity scale and offer itself free to underserved audiences like a men's prison community, women's prison, juvie detention center, homeless shelter, da 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 And we're trying to get that up in 2020. And the other thing is, is that there's about six, eight of us working this last year on shooting a Steppenwolf documentary about the theater. We don't have a director yet and we don't have a venue or real money yet, but I hope that both those things become, you will, that they become real. I want to see that. Yeah. 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 Oh, great. All right. Jeff, thank you, man. Thank you, brother. All right. Okay. I do it every time we have a guest top three takeaways. There are always more than three. So feel free to write in and challenge me if you feel like I missed a major one. Number one, we talk about it on the show all the time. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. So choose them wisely. Maybe Jeff got lucky. He went to high school with Gary Sinise. They had an incredible teacher who harnessed their power and interest in the arts. He stumbled upon talents like Malkovich, Joan Allen, and Laurie Metcalf in college. And how much did that influence him and his work? I'd say a hell of a lot. So you may not be as fortunate to be around that kind of talent, but in today's day of the internet, you really can seek people out and find your tribe. There are no excuses. That tribe will do more for you than just reading books or listening to podcasts in seclusion. Well, maybe not more than listening to 10,000 no's, but you get my point. Go find your tribe. Number two, follow your bliss. Not someone else's bliss, not other people's opinions of what a good career path would be. Jeff talked about forsaking paying TV and film for a long time just to work with his mates and tell stories he was passionate about. When you take care of that part, you are eventually taken care of financially. Trust me, we had this conversation at Jeff's house in the Hollywood Hills, and it was awesome. But like so many other uber successful people I know, as cool as the rewards of his work are, that's not what defines him. What defines him is his love of the work and his tireless pursuit of excellence. The other stuff is just window dressing. Number three. Something that affected me personally right when he said it was, he said that he was finally able to relax and really go deep with the work once he had a contract for Nash Bridges. And the reason it hit me, and probably my wife when she hears this episode, is because I have never had a contract. And I'm 47 years old. And I think I'm pretty good, and I've been doing this a long time, so sometimes I get bitter because I never have certainty. But here's what I'll tell you guys. 
I'd be lying if I told you I didn't want a contract and a lot more money for what I do. And I believe that's on its way. And we can all strive for it. But here's what you need to know if you're in the 99.9% of the other people who don't have it yet. It's going to be all right. Take what you have or don't have and flip it. That's what this show is. I took the thing that depressed me the most and I turned it into my platform. So now I thank God I never had a contract and that I haven't made a mint yet. Because if I had, you wouldn't be listening to this right now. I would have had no reason to build it. And my belief is that this show and the entire 10,000 knows platform that I've been slowly concocting in my head for almost three years will end up having more impact on the world than my acting career will. Or it'll fan the flames of my acting career and help it have the impact that it deserves. The bottom line is this. Good breaks or bad breaks, there are no excuses. There is only a good attitude. And if you have that, you will get where you need to go. Maybe not overnight. Maybe it'll be closer to the three decades that it took me. But the journey will be yours. And no one can take that from you. All right, go check out the links in the show notes. If you want more information about Jeff, please share this episode with your friends or take a screenshot of it and post it on your social media. If you dug it, if you can take a few minutes to leave an iTunes review, I would personally appreciate that. And subscribe to 10,000 Knows wherever you listen and you won't miss any episodes when they come out every Friday. If you like today's conversation, check the links in the show notes for these past conversations. Emmy Award-winning actor Richard Schiff of The West Wing and The Good Doctor, actor Julie Benz of Dexter, or City on a Hill actor Mark O'Brien. There are tons of others, but start with those. You can also scroll through 10,000knows.com to see which other episodes Mike speak. You can also scroll through 10,000knows.com to see which other episodes might speak to you. Join us again next Friday for my conversation with former Navy SEAL Jay Redmond. Incredibly inspiring story. For announcements and promo videos of who's next, you can follow me on social media. Those handles are at Matty Dell on Instagram, at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook. And you can email us at info at 10,000nos.com. That's 10000nos.com if you want to be added to our mailing list or with questions, feedback, or guest suggestions. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back. 